You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 82, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Becoming Fully Human, The Significance of Anthroposophy in Contemporary Spiritual Life, Six Lectures, translated by Jeff Martin. This is Lecture 3, entitled The Visual Arts, given in The Hague on April 9, 1922. In a certain sense, what I have to say today will be an interlude in the course of my lectures here. From the perspective of a scientific consideration, an outlook into the field of artistic creation will be sought. However, the content of today's consideration will demonstrate, I hope, that this interlude will fully contribute to the illumination of what I have said already and what I will say in the coming days. When the anthroposophic movement had been active for some time, a number of personalities who belonged to it became convinced that this movement should have its own building. Through various circumstances, which I do not have to mention here, the site of this building was finally determined to be the Jura Hill near Basel in Dornach, Switzerland. There the Goetheanum, the school of anthroposophic spiritual science, is now being built. And although not yet completed, it is already in use to an extent with lectures being held and work being done there. I would now like to speak only of the inner conditions that led to this building. If in any other contemporary spiritual movement the decision had matured to erect a building of its own, what would have been done to bring this about? Well, one would have turned to one or more master builders, and one would have erected a building in the classical or Renaissance style, or in the Gothic style, or in any other of the traditional architectural styles. In accordance with what is done today in the various arts, artists and craftsmen would also have been called in to decorate this building in some way, colorfully, pictorially, and sculpturally. All this could not happen for the Dornach building, for the school of spiritual science, because it would have been in contradiction with the whole intention and with the innermost essence of the anthroposophic conception of the world. This anthroposophic conception of the world does not want to be something one-sidedly theoretical, does not want to be something that expresses the laws of the universe in a sum of ideas. This anthroposophic worldview wants to be something that springs from the whole human being and is there for the whole human being. It wants to be something that can very well be expressed in thought forms, as is usual when any worldview is to be presented. But it wants to be something much more comprehensive. It wants to be able to speak out of the whole scope of the human being. It wants to be able to speak not only from a theoretical scientific spirit, It wants to be able to speak also from an artistic spirit. It wants to be able to speak from a religious, from a social, from an ethical spirit. And all this in such a way that it corresponds 
to the interests of the immediate practical life in the respective areas of activity. I have often expressed what the task is like for the Gertianum in Dornach in a trivial way by means of a comparison. I have said, consider a nut with its kernel inside and with the shell all around. If you look at the nutshell, it is impossible to imagine that the grooves and twists of the nutshell have emerged from other laws than the grooves and twists of the nut kernel. Both emerge, so to speak, as if from one being. The nutshell, by covering the nut, emerges from the same lawfulness as the nut kernel itself. When the Dornach building, this double-domed structure, was erected, it was a matter of creating a structural, sculptural, and pictorial shell for what is being developed and done in it out of the anthroposophic worldview. Just as it is possible to speak from the podium in Dornach through the language of thought about what is seen in supersensible worlds, so it must be possible to let emerge from the same spirit, architecturally, sculpturally, and pictorially, the framework for this anthroposophic worldview. But in doing so, there is a great danger. You stand before the danger of having ideas about this or that, and then expressing these ideas externally, in symbolic form, or even in empty allegories. This happens very often when worldviews pass over into outer representation. Then symbols or allegories arise which are not at all artistic, which, on the contrary, make a mockery of truly artistic feeling. It must be stated above all for the anthroposophic conception of the world that it wants nothing to do with such symbolic or allegorical anti-art non-art. It wants to sprout from as rich an inner spiritual life as does its worldview. Such a spiritual life cannot live itself out allegorically or symbolically, but only in creations that are genuinely artistic. There is not a single symbol, not a single allegory to be seen in the Dornach building. Everything that has been artistically portrayed has arisen from artistic contemplation, from the shaping of form, from working out of color in a painterly way. It has arisen through a perspective that is thoroughly artistic. It has nothing to do with what is usually expressed when people come and say, What does this mean? What does that mean? In Dornach, not a single form should mean something in this sense. Rather, every form should be something in the genuinely artistic sense. That is, it should mean itself, express itself. Those people who come to Dornach today and claim that there is something symbolic or allegorical to be seen are just putting their own prejudice into this building. They are not at all reflecting on what has come about through this building. For it is certain that the same spirit, not a theoretical one, but the living spirit that speaks from the podium or works from the stage, should also speak from the artistic, sculptural forms of the building, from what is pictorially represented. The shell should emerge from the same essence as the core within it, namely the worldview that is expressed through the spoken word. But if the anthroposophic worldview is something new in the development of humanity, 
as I have taken the liberty of explaining in the considerations of the last two lectures, then what has already been expressed in the past could not be expressed again. Thus it was natural that in architectural style, in sculptural and pictorial forms, out of the entire visual arts, something new had to emerge. No artistic recollections, not classical, not renaissance, not gothic, reminiscences could have been realized. The anthroposophic worldview had to prove productive enough to bring forth its own artistic style for the visual arts. Certainly, when such a desire is in the soul and heart, you become quite modest. You become your own worst critic. I know that if I had to build the Dornach structure a second time, many things that seem to me today to be quite imperfect, even often faulty, would have to look different. However, in essence, at least for today's consideration, it does not depend on this, but on the intention that I have just characterized. And it is of this will, this intention, that I should like to speak. When we speak of visual art as it appears in this context, especially of the visual arts to which the anthroposophic worldview has been guided as to a necessary creation by the fact that friends have been found who have brought their offerings to the construction of the Dornach building, when we speak of visual art in this sense, it is above all a matter of understanding how everything in the visual arts ultimately aims at, proceeds from, and creates out of the human form. Yesterday I also spoke of an element of the spatial element, insofar as this is an element of the world, which nevertheless emerges from the human being. Yesterday I spoke about the fact that the three dimensions of space, according to which we finally determine all the forms that are the basis of the world around us, can be brought out of the human form. But if we speak as I did yesterday about space, then we never actually arrive at the conception of space we must bring into sensitive artistic creation if, with full consciousness, we want to practice plastic art in particular, which is the art that ultimately underlies all visual art. Just when you have space so concretely in its three dimensions before your mind's eye, EYE, as is the case with the observations I made yesterday, then you see, the space to which you thus come cannot be the same space in which you find yourself, for example, when you form, when you sculpt the human figure. You cannot come at all to the space one finds oneself in as a sculptor. This is a completely different space. When do you come to it? I am touching on a secret of a way of looking at the world that has basically completely been lost to our contemporary way of looking at things. To find it again, Please allow me to start from a seemingly quite abstract and theoretical way of looking at things. It will only serve to lead us to what will, then, be able to come before our soul's eye, EYE, in a much, much more concrete way. If we want to apply the space I described to you yesterday to the things of this world, and we do it geometrically, first of all, geometrically in the Euclidean sense, then we proceed, as is well known, 
by assuming a point within concrete space. One would have to assume that this point, of course, lies inside of the human body. We assume, extending from this point, three axes perpendicular to each other. Then we refer to this point some spatial area by determining the distances from these three axes, respectively from the three planes that are formed by these three axes. In this way we come to a geometrical determination for something that fills our space. Also in the sense of kinematics, the mathematics of movement, we then have the possibility of expressing movement in this space. But besides this space there is definitely another space. The sculptor assesses this other space. This other space has its secret in the fact that we cannot start from a point and, so to speak, refer everything to this point. But we must start from the opposite of this point. What is that? The opposite of the point is nothing other than an infinitely distant sphere, a sphere to which we would look up in approximately the way we look up to the blue firmament. Think of it. Instead of having a point, I am inside a hollow sphere. Then I relate everything that is inside of it to this hollow sphere. Instead of relating to a point by coordinates, I relate everything to this hollow sphere. As long as I give you only this representation, you can rightly say, yes, but the determination with reference to such a hollow sphere is something chaotic. If I am to think something, I can arrive at no mental image of it. And you would be right. You can have no image of it. However, we now have an ability to relate to the cosmos in the same way as yesterday we related to the human being, to the anthropos. We then looked into the human being and got the three dimensions of space. And we were able to determine the human being according to these three dimensions by saying that in the one-dimensional direction lies the length of the upright body. In the second lies what falls roughly in the plane of the outstretched arms, that which is symmetrically built into the human organism. And in the third lies everything positioned in the direction from front to back and vice versa. So, when we look at the human organism, we do not have something that lies in just any random way within these three dimensions. We find the human organism formed and shaped in a very definite way. In the same way, we can also relate to the cosmos. How does it happen inwardly, soulfully, when we relate to the cosmos in such a way? Now think of yourself standing in a field on a clear starry night so that you can freely look up to the starry sky all around. By looking freely around the starry sky, you see areas in the firmament where the stars are clustered, almost to the point of forming cloud-like formations. You see other areas of the sky where the stars appear more separated from each other, forming constellations as they are called and so on. If you face this starry sky only intellectually, using only your human intellect, you come to nothing at first. But if you face this starry sky with your whole human being, then you feel differently. Today we have lost this possibility of feeling, 
but it can be reacquired. You feel one way toward a spot in the sky where the stars group together only nebulously, and you feel differently where constellations stand out. You feel differently again opposite a spot in the sky where, for example, the moon stands shining. You feel a night differently when there is no moon, during a new moon, and so on. And just as you can feel concretely into the human organism in order to get the three dimensions, where space itself is something concrete, something connected with the human being, so you can acquire a view of the cosmos, of that which is the periphery. You do not only need to look inside yourself in order to come to something like the three dimensions, but you can now look into the expanse, can envisage the configuration of the expanse. And if you learn to understand how to grasp this vastness by advancing from the ordinary view, which is still sufficient for Euclidean geometry, to such a view as you need for this vastness, then you arrive at a view that I have called imaginative cognition. Yesterday and the day before I spoke of imaginative cognition, the cultivation of which I will later speak about. Those who would simply record what they see in the vastness of the world would come to nothing. A mere drawing of the starry sky, as the astronomers do today, leads to nothing. But when the whole human being, with the full understanding of the cosmos, confronts this cosmos, then in the interior of the soul, Images are formed in counterposition to these star clusters. We see them on old maps, where, from the ancient instinctive clairvoyance, such imaginations were still formed. Then we receive an imagination of the whole cosmos. We get the counter-image of what I presented yesterday as the human basis of the three geometric dimensions of space. We get something that can configure itself in infinite ways. People today basically have no idea how humanity once gazed into the universe in olden times, when people still had an instinctive clairvoyance. Today it is believed that the different drawings, the pictures, the imaginations, which were made as zodiacal images, have sprung from mere fantasy. They did not. They were perceived and felt by facing the cosmos. The progress of humanity demanded that this instinctive, this lively, this imaginative contemplation should be extinguished. This happened so that an intellectual contemplation that liberates the human being could take place. But if we want to be wholly human, we must advance to such an imaginative cognition of the universe again, no longer instinctively, but with full consciousness. If in this way, from the starry sky, we come to a conception of space, then we do not get a space that can be exhausted by three dimensions. We get a space that I can also only suggest pictorially. If I have to indicate the space I spoke of yesterday with the three lines standing perpendicular to each other, they are drawn from a center as in the following diagram, I would have to indicate this other space by drawing configurations everywhere, as if forces within planes 
approach the earth from all sides of the universe and from without had a plastic effect on the formations on the surface of the earth. We come to such a mental image if we advance from what can be seen with the physical eyes of living beings, above all human beings, to what I have called imagination. Then, instead of the physical human being, the cosmos opens itself in picture form and shows us a new space. As soon as we advance to this, we come to see a second human body. We come to what an older, divining, instinctive clairvoyance called the etheric body. It is better designated as the body of formative forces. It is a supersensible body, which, however, definitely consists of fine etheric substantiality and which penetrates the human physical body. We can study the physical body by looking for the forces flowing through it within its centric spatial extension. We cannot study the etheric or formative force body that flows through the human being if we start from centric space. We can study it only if we understand how it is formed from out of the whole cosmos, if we understand it in such a way that these very planes of force coming to the earth from all sides approach the human being and form the body of formative forces plastically from without. In no other way did the visual arts come into being from out of their elemental original source. With an intuitive glance you will see this in such a work as, for example, the Venus de Milo. It was not created by studying anatomy, by appealing to the forces that are merely comprehensible from the spatial sense of the physical body. It was created by what was known in older times as the body of formative forces, which pervades the physical body, which is formed out of the cosmos, which is formed out of a space that is just as peripheral as earthly space is centric. By the fact that a being is formed from the periphery of the universe, beauty is imprinted on it. This is in accord with the original meaning and essence of this word. The essence of beauty is the imprint of the cosmos, with the help of the etheric body, on a physical earthly being. If we study a physical earthly being according to pure dry truth, then we grasp it exactly according to ordinary physical space. If we allow the beauty of a being to have an effect on us, if we want to enhance this beauty of a being through plastic visual art, then we must become aware that what is imprinted on a being as beauty comes from the cosmos. This is what reveals to us in the individual being how the whole cosmos works in this being. For this, however, we must feel how this cosmos expresses itself in the example of the human form. This human form becomes differentiated if we are able to approach it through inner imaginative cognition. At first we direct our soul's attention to the formation of the head. If we survey the head formation in its totality, we cannot understand its formation by attempting to explain it merely from the inside of the head. We can understand it only as coming directly out of the cosmos, 
on its way around and through the body of formative forces. If we go on to the formation of the human chest, then we come to an inner understanding in reference to its form, only if we have the possibility of imagining how the human being lives on the earth. All the orbits of the planets circle round the earth along the zodiacal line, even if only apparently according to today's astronomy, which doesn't play a role in this consideration. While we refer the head to the whole cosmos, we refer what is formed in the human chest to all that turns in the revolving equatorial line, to what takes place in the different ways the sun circles round in a year or a day. Only when we go to the human limb system, especially the lower limb system, do we get the feeling that this is now not assigned to the outer cosmos. This is assigned to the earth. This is connected with the gravity of the earth. If we look with the sense of the plastic artist at the formation of the human foot, we see it adapted to the gravity of the earth. We see in their whole configuration how the lower leg and the upper leg are joined together through the mediation of the knee in such a way that they demonstrate the working of the force of gravity in its dynamics, in its statics, from out of the center of the earth into the universe. We have these feelings when we look at the human figure with the sculptor's gaze. For the head we need all the forces of the cosmos. We need the whole sphere, so to speak if we want to understand what is expressed in such a wonderful way in the formation of the head. If we want to understand what is expressed in the chest formation, we need, so to speak, that which flows around the periphery of the earth in the equatorial plane. If we want to understand especially the lower human limb system with the metabolic system connected to it, we must keep to the forces of the earth in this respect. The human being is bound to the forces of the earth. In short, through the human form we receive a connection with the whole living, vividly conceived world space. Today, people will likely laugh in many circles, also in artistic circles, about such observations as I have just made. I can well understand why. But they know little of the real history of human development when they laugh at these things. For those who can really delve into the sculptural art of olden times, they already see in the sculpted figures of that time how feelings and sensations that were formed in an imaginative vision of the starry sky flowed into such figures. In the ancient sculptural forms, the cosmos was brought to view in the human form. But what is otherwise called cognition in an intellectual sense, must be regarded as a cognition that was then connected with the whole range of human soul forces. You become a real sculptor by sculpting out of elementary forces, not by learning to rely on old stylistic forms in order to develop again what people knew in this or that stylistic epoch but no longer know today. You do not become a sculptor by relying on the traditional, as happens mostly today, even with accomplished artists. 
but you become a sculptor by being able to reach back with full consciousness to the formative forces that once led to the plastic arts. There we must receive again cosmic perceptions. We must again feel the universe and be able to see a microcosm, a small world, in the human being. We must be able to look at the human forehead, how it receives an imprint from the cosmos. We must be able to see the nose, how it receives an imprint from that which also imprints itself on the whole respiratory system, namely from the periphery, from what circles the earth in the equatorial plane, in the zodiacal plane. And then we get the feeling, the sense for what must be represented. You do not create by mere imitation, by mere imitation of a model. You create by immersing yourself in that power out of which nature herself has formed and created the human being. You create the way nature herself creates. Then, however, the entire cognizing and artistically creative powers of sensing must be able to adapt to this. When we have the human form before us, we first direct our artistic gaze to the human head. We do this with a tendency to form this human head plastically. We will then strive to form as much as possible of this head in all its details, to treat every surface as much as possible lovingly, to treat the forehead surface lovingly, to treat the curvature toward the eyes lovingly, to work out the ears and so on. We will strive to form the lines that run across the front of the forehead, across the nose, as lovingly as possible. We will strive to make a nose shaped this way or that, depending on what we want to create. In short, we will try to form lovingly every individual surface that relates to the human head. If, on the other hand, as sculptors, perhaps I am saying something heretical for many people, but I do believe that what I have to say goes back to original artistic feelings. If we as sculptors wanted to make an effort to form human legs, we would always experience a certain resistance to this. You want to shape the head as lovingly as possible, but not the human legs. We would like to hide them, to take them away from artistic shaping by trying to have all kinds of garments over them, all kinds of things that sculpturally adapt themselves in a different way to what is expressed in the head. A human figure with properly chiseled legs, calves, for example, is actually something unappealing to the sculptor's artistic eye, E-Y-E. I know I'm saying something heretical, but I also know I'm speaking all the more out of elemental artistic perception. You don't want properly chiseled legs. Why not? Well, for the sculptor there is simply a different anatomy, a different cognition of the human form than for the anatomist. For the sculptor there are actually no bones and muscles, as strange as that may sound. For the sculptor there is the human form, which is formed with the help of the body of formative forces from out of the cosmos. And in this human form there are For the artist, forces, force effects, force lines, force connections. I cannot possibly think of the top of the skull as a sculptor in any other way when I form the human head but to form it from the outside in as it is shaped from the cosmos. 
However, that which gives me the corresponding curvatures of the head, I form according to dynamics, according to forces that push the form from the inside out, that oppose the forces acting inwardly from the cosmos. As a sculptor, when I form the arms, I do not think of bones, but of those forces that act, for example, when I bend the arm. There I have lines of force, developments of force, not what develops as muscle or as bone. And the thickness of the arm depends on what lives there, not on the muscle tissue that is on it. But because in forming beauty you have above all the tendency to adapt the beautiful human form to the cosmos, you can do this only with the head, for the lower limbs are adapted to the earth and therefore you want to leave that out. You would like to lift the human form from the earth when you arrange it artistically. You would make it a heavy earth being if you were to form too much of the lower human being in the art of sculpture. And if we look at the head alone, again, we see that it is only the upper part of the head, the wonderfully arched skull that is arched differently in each individual. There is therefore only an individual phrenology, no general phrenology. It is only this upper part that is modeled on the whole cosmos. What is formed in the eyes and nose is formed similarly to the human thoracic organism. They are already formed according to the periphery, according to the equatorial current. Therefore, when I depict the eyes in a sculptural work that represents a human being, I know that I cannot depict the gaze, the deepened or the superficial gaze, by any kind of coloring. I must limit myself to depicting large or small, slit or oval eyes, or more or less straight eyes. But to represent the transition of the eyes into the shape of the nose, the forehead into the shape of the nose, is to sense how human beings see by putting their whole soul into this seeing. This is different with slit eyes, different with oval eyes, different with straight eyes. Look at how the human being breathes, this wonderful possibility of expression. You need only feel how the human being breathes through the nose, and you will say to yourself, as the human being is in the chest, as the chest form is created from the cosmos, so the human being pushes up into the eyes and nose what is breathed in the chest, what beats in the heart. It is expressed in the pictorial form. In the way the human being is in the head, it only comes to expression in the top of the skull, which in terms of its form is an imprint of the cosmos. In the way the human being reacts to the cosmos, by not merely taking in the oxygen and acting passively, but how we humans have our own share in this substance, how we present our own being to the cosmos in the chest. This is expressed sculpturally, through the formation of the eyes and the nose. And by forming the mouth, oh, by forming the mouth, we actually already form the whole inner human being in its opposition to the cosmos. There we form the way the human being reacts to the world out of the metabolic system, in the formation of the mouth, in the formation of the chin, in everything that belongs to the formation of the mouth, we form the metabolic limb human being but in its spiritualization, in its outwardly acting image. 
Thus, whoever stands before the human head, in a sculptural sense, has the whole human being there according to the nature of the human organic systems. You have the skull cap with its strange curvatures according to the nerve sense system. In the eye-nose formation you have, speaking platonically, the courageous person, a human being who with inner individuality courageously confronts the outer cosmos. And by forming the mouth, which belongs to the head formation that is configured from the outside, you actually have from the inside counteracting the configuration that works in from the outside, that which makes up a person's inner being. From these fleeting indications, which could be no more than sketches about which you will have to continue to think, you will have seen that the sculptor does not really need a knowledge of the human being gained by imitating a human model. The sculptor must actually be able to inwardly re-experience the forces that work through the cosmos, shaping the human form. The sculptor must be able to create out of what is happening when the human being is formed plastically out of the fertilized germ cell of the maternal body, to create from what works through the mother out of cosmic forces, and not merely from the forces that are in the maternal body. As sculptors, we must be able to create in such a way that at the same time we can understand what is progressively revealed out of the individual human being the further we descend toward the limbs. Above all, we must be able to understand how this wonderful outer covering of the human being, the form of the skin, arises as the result of the two forces, the forces that work peripherally from all sides of the cosmos and that which works centrifugally outward and opposes them. For the sculpture, the outer form of the human being must be a result of cosmic forces and inner forces. The true sculptor will need to have such perceptions in every detail. If we, let us say, sculpt out of wood, and in art it is a matter of having a feeling for the material, of knowing what this or that material is suitable for, otherwise we do not create sculpture but only illustrate an idea in a novelistic way, If we sculpt the human form out of wood, we will know by forming the top of the head that we must have the feeling that the form presses in from the outside. This is the secret of creating the human form. When I form the forehead, I must have the feeling that by forming it, I am pushing it in from the outside, but from the inside forces are working against me. I can only press lightly or forcefully in order to push back the forces working from within, as far as is possible, in accordance with the cosmic forces that form the head the way it must be. But what is very interesting is that when I come to the rest of the human body, I do not advance if I form and shape from the outside. There I must have the feeling that I am inside. Already when I come to the formation of the chest, I must put myself into the inside of the human being and form plastically from the inside outward. Through the inner necessity of artistic creation, in forming the head, I come to form from the outside, to think of the outermost border and to work toward the inside. In creating the chest, I must put myself inside 
and push the form outward. In the downward direction I have the feeling that there it must only be hinted at. There it goes over into the undefined. Artistic creation as we know it today would very often like to regard something like what I have just explained as inartistic fantasy. But artists are actually only able to stand within the whole creative cosmos when they can artistically live through in their souls what I have just indicated. Then we are directed everywhere when approaching the visual arts not to imitate the physical human form. For this form is itself only an imitation of the body of formative forces. We need to feel the necessity that above all the Greeks felt. They would never have produced their noses and foreheads by mere imitation because their sculpture was instinctively founded on such things as I have now described. We will only be able to come to really elemental artistic feelings when we are able to place ourselves in this way into the creative forces of nature with complete inner soul feeling, with our inner total cognition, if I may use the expression. Then, however, we do not actually go to the outer physical body, which itself is only an imitation of the etheric body. But we approach this etheric body itself. And then we form this etheric body and fill it out, as it were, only with matter, with substance. What I have just described is at the same time the way out of a theoretical view of the world. It is a way to penetrate into the living vision of what can no longer be viewed theoretically. You cannot construct sculptural space through analytical geometry in the same way as you can construct Euclidean space. Through imagination you can see the sculptural space that is everywhere configured, that is everywhere capable of creating forms out of itself. From a vision of this space, you can now really create out of it in the plastic arts, be it architecturally or sculpturally. I would like to insert a remark here that seems important to me, so that what could easily be misunderstood is less misunderstood. If someone is a magnetic needle here and one end points to the magnetic north, the other end to the south, then it will not occur to anyone if they do not want to speak today in a completely dilettantish manner, to explain the direction of the magnetic needle from the inner forces of the needle itself by merely looking at what is enclosed there by the steel. That would be nonsense. We go out of the magnetic needle and add the whole earth to the explanation of its direction. Embryology today assumes this dilettantism that I have just criticized, it looks only at how the human embryo develops in the mother's body. All the forces that form this human seed are assumed to be there, within it. In reality, the whole cosmos works on the configuration of the human embryo through the mother's body. Here the plastic forces within the whole cosmos are comparable to what is in the alignment of the magnetic needle, which are the forces of the whole earth. As I have to go out of the magnetic needle when looking at it, so I have to go out of the maternal body when looking at the embryo and have to assume the help of the whole cosmos. 
and I must immerse myself in this whole cosmos if I want to understand what guides my hand, what guides my arm, when I seek to sculpt the human form. You see, the anthroposophic worldview leads in a direct stream of development from merely theoretical observation to artistic observation. For an observation of the etheric body is not possible in a purely theoretical way. You must, however, have the spirit of science within yourself in the sense I characterized yesterday. But you must move into the contemplation of the body of formative forces by transforming into imaginations what weaves in mere thought. You must grasp the outer world not merely through thoughts or through laws of nature formulated in thoughts, but through imaginations. And this in turn can also be expressed in imaginations. And when we become productive, this passes over into artistic creation. Now, it is a peculiar thing if we let our gaze wander over the kingdoms of nature with the consciousness that such a body of formative forces is present. The mineral kingdom has no body of formative forces. The plants are the first to have a body of formative forces. The animals have one, and so do human beings. But the plant's formative force body is very different from that of the animal, and more so from the human. Here is the peculiar fact. Think of yourself as being equipped with sculptural artistic powers of perception, and imagine you are supposed to sculpt plant forms. You are resisted. I tried it the other day, at least in relief, but you can't shape the plants. You can only imitate traces of their movements. You can't sculpt plants. Just think of a rose or any plant that has a long stem. Sculpting it is impossible. Why? Because by thinking of sculpting a plant, one instinctively thinks of the body of formative forces. It is within the plant, similar to its physical body, but immediately forming it. The plant is by nature a plastic work of art. It cannot be changed. Any sculpting of the plant would be amateurish in comparison to what nature itself produces in the physical body and the body of formative forces of the plant. One must simply leave the plant as it is, or look at it with a sculptural spirit, as Goethe did in his work on the morphology of plants. The animal can already be sculpted. It is true, however, that when sculpting an animal, artistic creation is something different than when sculpting a human being. You only need to have an understanding of how an animal is basically a creature, for example, of the respiratory process. This is the case when we create, let's say, the predators. There we must understand them more as creatures of the respiratory process. We must regard them as breathing creatures and, so to speak, create everything else around this. But if you want to create a camel or a cow artistically, you have to start from the digestive process and adapt the whole animal to it. In short, you must look inwardly with an artistic eye to see what the main thing is. Then if you further differentiate what I am now stating in general terms, you find the possibility of plastically forming all the different animal shapes. Why? Well, the plant has an etheric body that is created for it from the cosmos. 
It is finished. I cannot reshape it. The plant is the plastic work of art that stands there in nature. It contradicts the whole sense of the factual world if I form plants out of marble or wood. From wood it is perhaps still possible, because that is closer to plant nature, but it is also already inartistic. The animal, however, opposes its own nature to that which is formed from out of the cosmos. In the animal, the etheric body is no longer merely formed out of the cosmos. It is also formed out of the inner being of the animal. And with the human being, now I have just said how this etheric body is formed from the cosmos only for the skull cap. I have said how the respiratory organism, refined, counteracts through eyes and nose, how the whole metabolic organism counteracts through the mouth formation. There, that which comes out of the human being counteracts the cosmic. And the boundaries of the human form are the result of these two effects, the human and the cosmic. There, the etheric body is formed in such a way that it arises from the inner being. By immersing ourselves artistically in the inner being, we can create freely. Just as the animal forms its etheric body out of its own being, the courageous or the cowardly, the suffering or the exultant human beings adjust their etheric bodies to their souls. We can investigate this. We can put ourselves in it and reproduce such etheric bodies. In doing so, if we have what has been characterized as a properly sculptural understanding, we will be able to form the human figure in the most diverse ways. Thus we see that by entering into a consideration of the etheric body, of the imaginative body, we enter into what then becomes artistic in itself, and we can let the ordinary scientific considerations be quite scientific. Someone can object, yes, but art is not science. Yet, as I already said the day before yesterday, if nature, the world, the cosmos itself are artistic, if they present to us what can only be understood artistically, then we can declaim for a long time that it is illogical to become artistic in order to understand things. Things, however, do not submit to a cognition that does not lead into the artistic. The world cannot be grasped in a way that is limited to what can be comprehended merely through thought. It can only be grasped by a universal comprehension of the world that finds in the organic and natural transition into artistic contemplation and also into artistic creation. Thus the same spirit speaks out of artistic creation which speaks out of the words we use to express in a more theoretical ideal form what we see in the world. Out of the same spirit as science comes art. In art and science, we have only two sides of one and the same revelation. We can say, on the one hand, that we look at things in such a way that we express what we have seen through thoughts. On the other hand, we look at them in such a way that we express what we have seen in artistic forms. The Dornach building, both in architecture and sculpture, and also in painting, has sprung out of this inner spirit. I could also say a lot about painting, because it also belongs, in its own way, 
to the visual arts. But here we move up to what is more of the nature of soul in the human being, to that which is not merely in the etheric body, but coloring the etheric body from out of the soul, becomes direct soul expression. Here too it becomes apparent how the anthroposophic conception of the world leads to an ascent to the elementally artistic, to the creatively artistic. Today, both in the religious and in the artistic, without the onlookers knowing it, and mostly without the artists knowing it, we actually live only out of the traditional, out of the old stylistic forms, the old motifs. We think we are productive today, but we are not. We have to find a way to put ourselves into creative nature so that what we create is really artistically original, elemental creation. Such an approach has of itself led to the fact that the art of eurythmy has emerged and developed out of the foundations of anthroposophy. That which arises in human speech and in human song through a very specific group of organs as a revelation of the human being can be extended to the whole human being if we only really understand this being. In this respect, all religious documents express ancient, instinctive, clairvoyant insights. And it already has a meaning when it is said in the Bible that Yahweh breathed into the first human the living breath. This indicates that the human being is, in a certain respect, a breathing being. Yesterday I indicated how in ancient times of human development the view prevailed that the human being is a breather, a breathing being, that which the human being becomes as a respiratory being in the configured breath in speech and song can in turn be given back to the whole human form. How our vocal cords, our tongues and palates and other organs move in speaking and singing can be transferred to the whole being. This is because each individual organ and organ system is in a certain sense an expression of the whole human being. Then something like eurythmy can come into existence. Here we need only remember the inner guidance of Goethe's doctrine of metamorphosis, which has not yet been sufficiently appreciated. Goethe rightly sees in the single leaf the whole plant. The whole plant is contained in a more primitive way in the leaf. And again the whole plant is only a more complicated leaf. In each individual organ he sees a metamorphosis of the whole organic being and the whole organic being is a metamorphosis of its individual organs. The whole human being is a more complicated metamorphosis of a single organ system, the laryngeal system. If you understand how the whole human being is a metamorphosis of the laryngeal system, then you are able, with just as much validity, just as much inner natural necessity, to let a visible language a visible song arise out of the whole human being. Just as song and language arise through an organ system, the same can arise through the movement of your limbs and through the movement of groups of people. We are embedded within the creative forces of nature. We immerse ourselves in the way the forces of humanness work in speaking and singing. And when we have these forces, we can transfer them to the forms of movement of our whole human being. 
Just as we transfer the forces of the cosmos to the resting form of the human being in sculpture, just as we live in artistic expressions of the inner soul of the human being in poetry, in song, in speech or recitation, so too can this be expressed through the whole human being in visible speech and in visible singing. I would like to say this. By forming the human being plastically, by creating the human form sculpturally, by creating the microcosm out of the whole macrocosm, we create the one pole. By immersing ourselves completely in the inner human being, by pursuing inner activity, by immersing ourselves in thinking, feeling, and willing, in everything that can be expressed through speech and song, we can create moving sculpture at the other pole. Thus we can say, the whole vast universe is united as in a wonderful synthesis when we create a plastic work of art. And what is concentrated in the deepest inner human being, as in a point within the soul, strives everywhere out into the vastness of the world in the forms of movement which we, out of ourselves, create eurythmically. The other pole answers from the human being in the eurythmic art, in this moving sculpture. We see the expanses of the world turning toward the earth, flowing together in the resting human form, and we have thus the plastic sculptural arts. We then delve deep into ourselves, into the human interior, spiritually immersing ourselves in the human interior, looking at what wants to come from the human being, to approach those cosmic forces which flow in upon us from all sides to build our form, looking at what flows, as it were, out from the human being to all points at the periphery of the universe. And it is in this sense that we form Eurythmy. I would like to say that the universe presents us with a great task, and the solution to this task is the beautiful human form. The inner human being also presents us with a great task. We draw infinite depths from it when we delve into the human interior with a lovingly intimate gaze of the soul. This inner human being, however, also wants to go out into all expanses, wants to express externally, in rhythm, in sweeping, swinging movements, wants to bring to expression that which has been soulfully compressed into a point just as a sculpture of the human form, which is a condensed point for the cosmos, and has within it a compression of all the secrets of the cosmos, is the answer to the great question that the universe asks us. So, when the human art of movement becomes cosmic, when we create something cosmic in our own movements, as is the case with Eurythmy, then out of the human being, at least pictorially at first, a kind of new cosmos is born. We have two poles of the visual arts before us, in ancient sculpture and in the newly created Eurythmy. We must thus enter into the spirit of the artistic if we really want to see the justification of Eurythmic art. We must also return to the way in which sculpture once took its place in humanity, you can well imagine, there on the fields are the shepherds, who at night send out their sleeping yet waking vision into the starry expanses, 
thus absorbing images unconsciously into their souls from the cosmos, into which the configured imaginations of the stars in the heavens are formed. What unfolded in the minds of primordial humanity was passed on to their children and grandchildren. That which was inherited grew in the souls of the grandchildren and became the abilities to sculpt, to form plastically. The grandparents felt the cosmos in its beauty. The grandchildren formed the beautiful plastic arts from the forces of the cosmos that were absorbed by the soul. Anthroposophy must not only look into the secrets of the human soul theoretically, it must experience all the tragedy of the human soul, all the exaltation of the human soul, and everything in between. And it must be able to see not only what is tragic, what is exultant, and all that lies between, but just as we saw the stars clearly in older imaginations, and as we could then take formative star forces into our souls. So we must now take from the human soul what we perceive in it, and must be able to communicate this in outer movements. Then Eurythmy comes into being. Today this is meant only to be a fleeting hint of the way in which a natural transition is to be made from what anthroposophy is as an ideal to what it wants to be as a direct and truly form-creating art, neither allegorizing nor symbolizing. If we can penetrate this, then we will find the remarkable relationship which art has to science and religion. We will see science on one level, religion on another, art in between. We will see that it is due to science that one basically has freedom. We could never have come to complete inner freedom without science. We will see what we have gained for our individuality, if we look at it impartially, what the essence of our humanity has gained by the fact that humanity has come to science. We have thus detached ourselves from the cosmos through thought. We are alone, but we are thereby human individualities. And as we live within the laws of nature, so we take them up into thought. We become independent in relation to nature. In religion, we want to surrender ourselves, want to find the way back to the essence of nature. We want to merge again with nature, want to offer our freedom on the sacrificial altar of the cosmos. We want to give ourselves to the Godhead, want to possess, along with the breath of freedom, of individuality, the breath of sacrifice. But there, in between, stands art, stand especially the visual arts, stands everything that is rooted in the realm of beauty. If you become a free individual being through science, if you sacrifice your whole being in religious forms, still preserving your freedom on the one hand, but on the other hand already sensing the need for sacrificial service, then you will find in art the possibility of preserving yourself by offering as a sacrifice, in a certain way, what the world has made of you. We form ourselves as the world has formed us. But we create this form out of ourselves as free beings. Thus in art, too, there is something redemptive and liberating. In art we are, on one side, individualities, while on the other side 
we sacrifice ourselves. And thus we may say on the one side, truth makes us free if we seize it ideally, scientifically, also spiritually, scientifically. And so we must say on the other side, in beauty we find again our connection with the world. We cannot be human without living freely in ourselves and without finding our connection with the world. You find your individuality in free thought, and then in connection with the world you find the possibility of making of yourself again what the world has made of you by lifting yourself up into the realm of beauty, into the realm of art. The end of Lecture 3